everyone. Welcome to Audiobookish. This is an audiobook review and discussion podcast. I'm here with Poppy Knight. Hello. And our guest today is Kelly Ergen. Kelly is a freelance editor and writer based in London. She's the founder of Eddie Integrity and offers manuscript critiques, developmental line and copy editing. She loves medieval historical and dystopian fiction. Recently, she's taken hiatus from monthly writing to develop several larger projects for a blog, the editor who reads too much. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We are doing well. So we're going to talk a little bit about what your favorite audiobooks are, but I just wanted to kind of ask you a few questions about things. So um, you're, you're a freelance editor and kind of one of the questions I wanted to ask is, what does a freelance editor do? Well, every freelance editor you ask will answer slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say for the majority of people and myself that do freelance editing, we are people who, like I've never worked in-house, but I know several that have worked in-house and then have, as things have changed in publishing, copy editing has been you know, outsourced. We've mm-hmm. left we've left the office. And so, you know, we, we do all those, you know, little checks, the, the, the grammar, the punctuation at the copy editing level, or if it's an independent author looking for help to create their book, um, mm-hmm. you know, we do like developmental edit or manuscript critique to kind of help them get the big picture things first before moving to the copy edit. Yeah. We, we, we just try and help make authors realize their, you know, dreams for their book. So. Awesome. And kind of we met through the SYP, which is the Society of Young Publishers. I think we're both still members of that. You, you kind of had a, a role within like the events team of the SYP. That's correct, isn't it? Kind of like last year. So I just wanted to ask, you know, kind of how, how that went. Um, yeah. So I arrived in London in August of 2019. And, you know, I knew I wanted to start meeting more people in publishing because when you're freelance, you're just on your own. Mm. You know, I wanted to make more connections and I found the SYP. I joined in August or September of 2019. And then I think in December they had the applications for the committee. So I just sent one off and uh, joined the committee uh, for 2020. And of course, we had one meeting in February before everything was pushed Mm. online. (laughs) So it was it was a bit of a struggle uh, to do much. We did our best and we had a good year for what it was. So, but this year I took a step back from the committee. I said, I'll wait till we're back in person, which has been a little bit longer than we all thought, I think. But um, yeah, no, the SYP has been a wonderful resource for getting to just know people in publishing, getting to know new people, as well as, you know, people who are, were in the SYP when they started and now they come back and help others. It's been a great place just to, you know, if you're, if you're fresh off the boat from anywhere, either, you know, international or if you've come to London or actually they have so many different groups now, you know, the Southwest and they have up in North, they have Scotland. It's just the right place to meet people if you want to get into publishing. Yeah. And I think, you know, last year was kind of a difficult year to run networking events, but I think the SYP from my perspective, at least did a really great job in running kind of virtual events and making sure they gave as much opportunity to people to network as they could, given the circumstances. I think it was, you know, it's, it's kind of funny with these virtual events, how in an odd way they're democratizing because you don't need to travel in down to London. Mm-hmm. You can just, you know, log on and meet people and stuff like that. And if you kind of suffer from social anxiety, like I do, um, you're not kind of like your heart doesn't start pounding because you're in a room with crowded people, <laughs> lots of people as well. So there were kind of advantages and disadvantages. Um, so Poppy should be kind of getting to you asking Kelly about her list of favorite audiobooks. Yeah, no, definitely. So like, what do you like about audiobooks? I guess what got you into them before we jump into the the rankings of the top recommendations? Yeah, what's your relationship with audio? Um, it's kind of a, it's not a funny story, but it's my audiobook story. So you mm-hmm. get scared. Um, so back in the early 2000s, 20 years ago, which is very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I went to university in Oregon, which is just north of California. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a two day drive. Uh, you know, right. so I remember one summer I was traveling from Oregon to home and, um, I was in the middle of Utah in the middle of the desert on a straight highway and I was not able to stay awake. I was like, this is so bad. So at the first uh, rest stop, I pulled off and I 
I grabbed a Red Bull and I'm like, this is not going to do it. So <laughs> I was looking around. I was like, what can I do? What can I do? And there was this, you know, kind of rack in the back of CDs and, and audiobooks. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh gosh, am I, can I handle an audiobook? Because I mean, this was, this was 20 years ago. I didn't, they weren't a thing then. So I grabbed one and I put it in and I didn't need the Red Bull. I was hooked. And the book, it was called uh, Self-Made Man, My Year Disguised as a Man by Nora Vincent. And it just opened my world to her like journalism, to audiobooks as a medium. Um, Mm -hmm. It's still my favorite. I still have the CD, CDs. (laughs) And it was, yeah, it was just, it was the right book at the right time. So Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really cool. So is that on your uh, your top list then? Yes, that is. Awesome. Yeah, weirdly, I think maybe we might have got into audiobooks at a similar time, but I was um, not a, of driving age as in, <laughs> in 2000, but um, similarly kind of like cars and stuff. So my mum put audiobooks on while she was driving and we were in the car. And yeah, that's one of my kind of love of audiobook memories too, is yeah, car journeys. Yeah, you just it's if you're somewhere and you just if you're a kid and you're not able to like enjoy the part of driving like being able to listen to something enjoyable is is really mm-hmm. nice, I think so yeah yeah for sure cool so yeah let's get into the first pick on your your audiobook list what's it about should we listen to it <laughs> well so I will say that the number one is self-made man by mm-hmm. Nora Vincent it was just you know at the time when you know I was a young 19, 20 year old, and mm. I had never thought about what it would be like to be a man. And for this woman to like, to dress as she, because, you know, drag was a thing back then, but, I, you know, it was usually one direction. So this was a mm. different direction. And I just thought it was enlightening to see how this woman went through different experiences as a man versus, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, I won't give anything away, but I won't forget when she's like, she had to go into the men's bathroom. And it's just like, Oh my gosh, the experiences are so different <laughs> for men and for women. And, and you know, now it's, you know, in the US, we had this big thing with kids who are trans not being able to have their own toilets. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's something that seemed really small to me at the time has now just become so important. And she, you know, in her book, was the first one to introduce me to those kind of ideas. So yeah, I just, I just can't get over how much I really liked that book. Okay, so the concept behind the book is that she dresses as a man for a year. I'm kind of without going into too many spoilers. What was the driving force behind her decision to do um, that? I think she was because she is a journalist, and she—I mean, every every woman has had some moment of like, if I were a man, I would not have had this experience. They wouldn't have mm. asked me this question. They yeah. wouldn't have treated me this way. And I don't, I don't like I said, I can too easily give away stuff. Yeah. So I'm being a bit vague, yeah. just so it, it doesn't spoil it. Um, she she said this is not acceptable. What's it going to be like from the other side? And yeah, I just, I really, I, I hope people can still get it. Like since I have the CD, I just listen to the CD. Okay. <laughs> it's so available. I don't want to be like, go read this book and then you can't find it. So yeah, I'm sure it must be. Everything's on Audible these days. Um, so I'm sure it's going to be available there. It's kind of, mm-hmm. just wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned about, you know, trans bathrooms and stuff like that. One of the things that both myself and Poppy have, encountered in some of the books that we've read is some of the lack of sensitivity reading or editing that um mm. that's going on so I was just wondering if you've got kind of any experience around that I know you kind of you attend a lot of the uh, ace conventions I see you kind of posting about those quite a lot on Twitter so I was just wondering <laughs> if you had any um experience of kind of like sensitivity reading and, and that sort of thing so I mean it is every editor's job to flag content that could be mm-hmm. harmful, damaging, othering, you know, that's every copy editor should be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, with And so, you know, some people call it sensitivity reads as a special separate thing. And there's also, you know, authenticity reading, which is, um, so for example, Crystal Shelley, she does a lot of the webinars about it because she is an Asian American woman. Her family comes from China and so she has the lived experience of being an Asian American woman who, you know, she can read books. And if you have a character who is an Asian American woman in your story and has interactions with other characters, she can say what this character is saying is not authentic to what our experience is. And she used something like the Chinese words that the character was using. Um, mm. they, weren't, they weren't correct. And so yeah. because she has the right background, 
she can do that. For example, I can't do a trend sensitivity read. I can't do Mm -hmm. it for, you know, LGBT, you know, you need to find an editor who identifies that way, who can say the experience you're writing about or portraying is not authentic or it's not um, representative of, you know, the group. So, because it it happens all the time. People are like, I'm going to put in a a gay character for, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. reason. And I've edited books where I've had to say, you need to have somebody else read this who identifies this way. So you're not harming them as a group and see what they say. And so even after I've done a copy edit, I will still suggest a sensitivity read if I think it's necessary. Mm. I think that's, yeah, it's... It's tricky, I think, because like you don't really want to put like limits on what people feel, yeah. you know, the freedom to kind of express themselves in writing about different uh, subjects. But at the same time, you do need to kind of be aware of the fact that you shouldn't unnecessarily go out of your way to to upset people. As a, is mm. what I'm trying is as mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. And if going to a sensitivity reader or some someone who's suggesting that, I think that's probably something that should be picked up on by a few more writers. I know there's kind of one big example that blew up recently over Twitter, you know, a couple of weeks ago mm. around um, race and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's just good, good practice at this point. So, yeah. And what you're saying about like, uh, you know, intentionally, but it's even those, you know, non-intentional things, because if it's not the circles you're in, the experiences that you've had personally, you kind of can, through no fault, of your own not as like a fault thing you cannot know that something can be you know harmful and that it's based on stereotype rather than experience and and those kind of things and therefore that's why it's really important for people not to think that they know it all and you know that intentions are all that matters and yeah get that second opinion and stuff like that so it's really nice to know that people yeah involved in the editing process and the copy editing process like yourself are you know, trying to move that forward and aware of the responsibility that that is, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's nine times out of 10, I would say my authors just don't know. They just haven't, yeah. un- they haven't thought about it that way. And when yeah. I, you know, I was like, oh, just have you thought about it this way? They're like, no, mm-hmm. but, and, but also nine times out of 10, they take my recommendation. So yeah. it's just, it's a, it's about education. No, definitely. Yeah. No, that sounds cool. I also thought with you and um, the description that you gave of that book, it kind of put me back to thinking of, a lot of much, much older texts that I've read and almost kind of a a trope, I guess, of women dressing as men to access certain things and kind of in a, not in a trans sense, in a sense of that kind of social boundaries and sexism and stuff like that. And the one that sprung to mind uh, was Shakespeare uses that loads, doesn't he? And Twelfth Night was, I think one of the first plays that I got, interested in for for Shakespeare because I think there was a like kids retelling version at my school library that I ended up reading and that Mm -hmm. sort of introduced me to Shakespeare I guess I think I was aware of Romeo and Juliet but you know this is the first one that I read and yeah I guess it's kind of interesting to think of that in that fictional sense and obviously you know Shakespearean time sense (laughs) um but to hear of a, a real life more modern instance of that I think must be really quite interesting yeah, it definitely is. And it's funny that you said that because even though I had read, you know, I had a literature class where I had to read Shakespeare and, and Twelfth Night mm-hmm. was one of the books, but I wasn't able to make the connections in the class with the literature. I was just like, okay, here's a story. Here's some people doing some things. Mm. And, like placed in the modern context, it was like, hey, I understand mm. that story a lot better now because of this other, you know, story I've read. So, Oh, yeah. Cool. What was it that you did at uni? That's funny. Um, <laughs> I was a geology major at first. Okay. But in the United States, we do university a bit different where you, you kind of have to take a, a breadth of classes, you know, mm-hmm. don't just have your your one subject. So um, I entered as a geology major, but I had to take literature courses. Mm-hmm. And uh, my first English professor, like he literally walked me down to what we had, what was called a writing center. He's like, you need to be a volunteer here. And basically what the volunteers there did was helped other students with their writing to get, you know, better grammar, better clarity, better, you know, analysis, better, you know. So he was basically telling me what I should do for my job, but I wasn't where yeah. to, to like connect the dots back then. Yeah. You know, in hindsight, it's like, oh, I could have been doing this my whole life if I had yeah. just been a little more aware. So, um, but 
so after my first year of geology, it, you know, it was like, I'm interested in this. I, it's not my passion. And I actually, mm-hmm. I then switched to English because I'd had some amazing teachers who just yeah. revolutionized how I looked at it. And so I did end up with a, a triple degree in English, German, and international relations. Fair <laughs> dues, so. quite a good mix. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes some teachers are just kind of what makes it click. And, mm-hmm. uh, and things like that and I had I guess in some ways something similar in that throughout my education I was really interested in literature in books and stuff but also in science I really loved science but when we get to like 16 mm-hmm. we you don't have to do this way but normally if you if you go on to college and stuff you'll kind of narrow it to either three or four subjects usually and I kind of thought at that time okay I really love my science I really love learning it but what do I want to do as a career? You know, like you were saying about moving to your job and I kind of knew publishing was what I wanted to do and therefore, yeah, left those more sciencey things behind and changed direction with how my education was going to go or like narrowed it, I guess, in that way. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's hard to make life decisions at 16 though, isn't it? It is, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, why Why 16? Anyway, um. <laughs> So what's the next book on your list? Okay, the next book on my list. It's so funny that we were talking about Shakespeare because the next two are kind of adaptations of Shakespeare. Ah. So, yeah, so every book has a little story with it. I'll try not I'll try to keep them short, but um Oh, go for it. It's <laughs> <laughs> why we're here. It's all good. So, when I was living in Japan after I graduated, I met people from all over the world and I met this friend from Australia who really had this thing for Richard Armitage. And if you guys don't know, that's the guy who plays, um, oh gosh, what is it? Um, the, the main, the head door? Uh, Thorin or? Uh, Thorin. Yeah. Thorin, yeah. Thorin. Yeah. So she Oaken had a big. Shield. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Oakenshield. There we go. Uh, she had a big thing for him, but she knew I liked Shakespeare. So one day I get this email from her. She's like, you are going to love this audiobook." And she had sent me a link and I checked it out. And it was Richard Armitage reading the novelization of Hamlet. Ah. So it's not a play. It's somebody kind of made it into a novel form. And he he read it. And ah, it's amazing. <gasps> oh, that's really cool. That's one that I went on a school trip to see a stage version of that. And I can't remember if we'd actually like read it I don't think we'd read it before in class I think it was kind of just that we were going to Stratford we we went to the RSC and we're watching basically just whatever was on at the time Mm -hmm. and yeah I'm pretty sure we didn't know what was going to happen because then with like the play within the play Mm -hmm. part of it and it was very because it's obviously about this kind of like you know sexual affair that's going on isn't it with his uncle Mm -hmm. and his mum and the like actors of the play within the play were very uh, physical with this portrayal um, (laughs) using a a massive baguette as a phallic symbol. And it was just really funny being sat like a few seats away from my English teachers as this actor was like thrusting his hips with um, a a large baguette um, waving around. (laughs) So it was great. It was a great trip. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know what it is about Hamlet, but when I went to see Hamlet, when I was studying my A-levels, there was also kind of like full frontal male nudity mm-hmm. in the that I went to. So I think it might be just something about that particular. <laughs> Dude, did you feel you were missing that from the audio? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what what you're missing from in that sense, you get in, in other senses, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, what kind of ways? So I think people who like literature, who like, who like Shakespeare, you know, we, Mm -hmm. it takes an effort. You don't just sit down and Mm. understand Shakespeare. It's, you know, (laughs) I've seen the play in person live, I think close to 12 or 13 times. And I've seen all the movies, but each time I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't catch that line before. That means. Right. Yeah. Whereas in the audio book, it's a novel. They've it's not a play it's not you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't use Shakespeare's language it's just the story and it's much more accessible I feel like gosh I wish I wish they'd done more of these like I don't want to take away from Shakespeare but you know once you've seen like sometimes you just once you've seen it you're like okay I think I can understand this a little bit better once you definitely go back and read it's just it's easier so (laughs) for sure I remember when I was doing some for literature I developed a system of having a 
recorded version like the stage play so luckily there was quite a lot of those I was able to access through my uni and then the script by the side and that was so helpful because even though you could claim okay maybe I wasn't reading it I was more watching it but you can understand it so much more when you see how someone's interpreted it to put it on stage and yeah it really does help that barrier of languagey stuff where you miss things yeah yeah so I mean there's two things I want to quickly talk about firstly mm. like Richard Armpitage has got a really beautiful speaking voice he did one of my favorite things of the past couple of years which is the Wolverine podcast those are really good and he does a superb performance as Wolverine so he's got a real talent for audio and kind of being able to really get across those complex emotions you know with with simple sense it's a real skill to do that with audio it's not straightforward Hmm. at all and then kind of the other thing about kind of Shakespearean language I don't know if you guys saw this on YouTube but there was kind of like the way Shakespearean actors pronounce the words these days is apparently isn't authentic to the way they Hmm. would have pronounced it in Shakespeare's days when you pronounce a lot of the sentences with kind of like a more northern accent kind of it gives the sentences a different rhythm and it kind of imbues that with kind of like different meanings as well. It kind of becomes a lot more bawdy in some sections and raucous and uh, in, in others. So it's just kind of the interpretation of the text in plays is really a fascinating area. I, you know, I volunteered at a theatre for a while and just seeing the amount of efforts that directors and actors go into to try and understand and interpret mm. the text is mind-blowing, really. So, yeah. Um, Fahed, are you, uh, are you talking about my Lord and Saviour, Sir David Crystal, um, when you talk about the <laughs> accent stuff? Um, because I feel like you are. I, can't, I don't know. I can't remember what his name is. Oh, man. So David Crystal is... My Lord and Saviour. He is a legend uh, in kind of linguistics circles. And his son is an actor. And they definitely did a a YouTube video talking about kind of what the accent would have been like back then and how kind of these words would have been pronounced and stuff like that. So I think that is what you're talking about. And yeah, I fully recommend people go and watch that video. I'm sure we can link it in podcast description and on social medias and stuff. Um, It's really good. And yeah, I have a massive kickoff book, which was him and his son wrote, which is like the Shakespeare dictionary that he did. And yeah, anything David Crystal, you know, I at Sheffield where I was at uni they got him in every year to do a a charity talk uh, which I always went to and I love David Crystal I'm sorry you've made me swoon Uh, my heart (laughs) is beating fast (laughs) I do have David Crystal so yeah everyone go and um, investigate David Crystal and yeah especially if you're interested in that how Shakespeare might have sounded back in Shakespeare's day rather than like super RP versions of or the speech. Yeah, I've just Googled him and yeah, I think that is... That oh, is yes, I knew it. <laughs> I can sense when he's mentioned. <laughs> he's so great. Okay. Are you aware of David Crystal, Kelly? Oh, I own almost all of his books. And... I, oh, it's so great, isn't he? <laughs> yes, I met him when he came to a, a literature festival in Dubai when I was living there. Mm. And he gave a speech and he's yeah. act. I'm not, I was just trying to check. Um, I'm a member of the Chartered Institute of Editing and Proofreading, which I believe he's either the president or Ooh, what? Okay, yeah. Like he's a big he's a big deal in my in mm-hmm. my world too. In, in the editing world, everybody. Yeah. Knows, so. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, love him. <laughs> he's he's world renowned. Let's just say that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm so blushing. That's an <laughs> <laughs> interesting turn. Um, <laughs> So, uh, what's the what's the next book on your um on your list, uh, Kelly? Well, I hate to be unoriginal, but when I like something, I really like something. And mm-hmm. my third favorite uh, audiobook would be um the novelization of Macbeth, read by Alan mm. Cumming, for a lot of the same reasons. Like Alan Cumming brings the right voice and tone and creepiness to you know moving forests in in Scotland, mm. and yeah, it was kind of terrifying. But it was it was. You know, I like to read that one around this time of year, like kind of during Halloween, because it's just like, oh, it's so creepy. Mm. Um, and again, for the same reason, like I really love the story, but I found Macbeth very difficult to understand when I was studying it. Like I, some of the movie versions, I just was like, I just still don't get it. Mm-hmm. And then I listened to his book and this was not that long ago. This was just a few years ago. And I was like, oh, 
now I understand. <laughs> and so it's it's nice to feel like you finally, you know, the light bulb goes on and it's mm. it's because of these kind of stories that I don't want to say dumbed down, but they just, like I said, it's accessible, even to somebody who's, I've read the darn thing. And, <laughs> and sometimes when you're at the play, like I love going to, you know, the globe and you can stand there and, and listen and, oh, yeah. and like, you'll get a scene or a moment. I'll be like, okay, this one I understand, but I missed the one <laughs> after because I was still thinking about the one before it. And, um, so yeah, again, for the same reasons that I like the Hamlet is just that it's, I get it now. And it's, yeah. it's enjoyable. It's, I know a lot of people who don't like Shakespeare because they mm. struggle through it. And so I'm like, listen to this, try this one. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's curious. You mentioned that about Macbeth and not getting it. So I studied Macbeth at school and we studied I mean, maybe three Shakespeare plays at school, I think. And that was the one I did get because okay, I can understand the themes of ambition and greed and regret and revenge. Mm. The one that I really didn't get along with was much ado about nothing i just right. it was just i don't know if you're familiar with that i just i didn't understand why anyone was doing anything i was just really confused about uh, yeah that was one that i used my uni system for and it was actually a um version of it with robert Lindsay in mm-hmm. that i watched and yeah i was definitely glad that i had a visual performed version of it alongside the text i think um so yeah i'm not going to say i, I fully got it and I'm an expert on it but it definitely you know you could definitely follow the story and see what was going on and stuff like that yeah. I mean it is kind of for me it's the film adaptation that I've seen is the one with uh, Denzel Washington mm-hmm. and Keanu yeah, Reeves and for me it's just the abiding memory of kind of how handsome those guys looked <laughs> in their outfits I just like god damn I'm never gonna look as, as good as those guys kind of girls in my class kind of almost swooning over them not as much as me and Kelly over David Crystal, I can tell you that for now. <laughs> I also have a bit of a funny story how I was introduced to um, the Scottish play. Um, with It was, again, like a kid's version, but this one was like sci-fi. Um, so you know how it's like, you know, no man can kill you. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'm not a man. I'm a robot. <laughs> that, that was the, the twist in the version, the very first version that I had. So then, when yeah, I ended up at the actual original, I was like, what? There's no robots. What? Why are there no robots in this? What's going on? <laughs> so, are there any robots in the audiobook novelization? No, no robots. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Is it the same narrator? No, this one's Alan Cumming, mm-hmm. um, who is. A f- fantastic dramatic actor and it's you know oh it's, it's odd that you say he's a dramatic actor I've always like associated him more with like his comedy stuff so yeah that he's he's an excellent actor either way uh yeah I think I say dramatic because the last play I saw before lockdown was Endgame with oh, okay. Adam Cumming and Daniel Radcliffe and mm. by um Samuel Beckett and I'm just going to admit this to the whole world. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> but Alan Cumming was incredible. Like when you talk about suspending your your belief, you're just like, you felt like you were in the room with this kind of guy that was just not, wow, what's happening on stage? And so it was, it was very dramatic. I loved it. And I think that's, since that's my last impression of him and it kind of carries over from his Macbeth reading, I just... Because I'm not familiar with him so much in the comedy stuff. Yeah. I didn't know who he was until I got to the UK, really. Um, yeah. You know, because sometimes you get audiobooks, like, and you just listen. You don't pay attention to, like, I'm like, I don't know who the author is. I don't know who the reader mm. is. I'm just reading this book that I really wanted to read. And so, so now I'm, you know, during lockdown, I started connecting dots. I was like, oh, that's that person. And, oh, they did that too. And, oh, wow. I, you know, now, you know, I've got all of Richard's Armitage's um, audiobooks. like lined up, queued up, because it's just like, it's just, I love the experience of listening to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the next book on your list? So, I don't know. I'm just not a very original, like, number four and five, it's a tie, because it's the same book, different readers. <laughs> so, oh, okay. okay. My favorite Harry Potter book is Order of the Phoenix. And so I'm quite partial to the Jim Dale versions, because that's what I heard first. The American right. versions, and I know everybody in the UK is just gasping. They're like, "Oh!" But it, you know, when you get accustomed to a voice reading yeah. a scene, you're just like, "This is 
this is how it is. This is exactly how I imagined it. He's got it perfectly. And then I got to the UK and I tried Stephen Fry and I was like, oh, this is a, it's a different experience. Mm. And it sounds funny to say that, but it's kind of like we're talking about the different film versions of things. It's the same thing. It's like, no, this is the same story, but somebody has a different take on it, uses different voices, uses different, you know, tones and Mm -hmm. and pauses. And so, yeah, it's it's a little bit unoriginal, but I, I love them both. Like Jim Dale gets a little bit higher, probably only because (laughs) that's the one I knew first. Yeah, um, I was kind of, when you said that, it made me think about like covers for songs and stuff um, and about how sometimes, not always, but sometimes I find that it's about the one that you hear first that you think is better, <laughs> even if like objectively, maybe for everyone or maybe even objectively for your personal tastes, maybe one would be better than the other, but often just the one that you're used to hearing is <laughs> the one that you end up liking the most, I find. But yeah, and then also with you saying about them being how how it feels like such a different experience because someone that I was speaking to recently and trying to convert to audiobooks <laughs> was talking about how one of the reasons they don't like it is because it does inadvertently put an interpretation on it you know as opposed to your own reading of the page it is somebody's interpretation of it even in just those little things like you say of how it's intonated mm-hmm. and different voices that they put on and stuff like that that yeah that is part of the format as a guess isn't it yeah. i mean we had this discussion with the carpet people didn't we poppy mm. um around yeah can we we talked about it a little where david tennant's performance in that was really good but i'd listened to a previous version and i've forgotten the name of the writer forgive me but i preferred some of the choices he made around the accents that he gave to the characters mm-hmm. and how that kind of, for me, made the world of the story seem like a larger, faster place. So it, it mm-hmm. you know, these choices that, you know, narrators make about voices and intonation and, and things like this are, are really important to how you experience something. So it's not, it's not a small thing that you're talking about there, Kelly, and having kind of like a preference for one over, mm-hmm. over the other. And I, you know, it's a good topic to talk about because I was just thinking, I was like, there are no women on my list and, Mm. you know, huge oversight. And also like when the author narrates it themselves is a very different interpretation because I feel like that's, I mean, you know, everybody's going to have their own experience in a book, whether print, audiobook, Kindle, digital, Mm. whatever. Um, But I do like it when an author reads it themselves. Yeah. And always you need to kind of get the right one. Obviously, you know, there are some authors who are going to be amazing writers, but reading it just isn't going to isn't going to work. It's kind of interesting now. So I have a job in audiobooks. It's very exciting. Still can't believe it. Um, but I've kind of got a first taste of, yeah, just various different things that go into it. And sometimes how just authors are really excited about the audiobook being good and therefore they want to put a lot of effort into it, whether that is themselves reading it or whether that's them taking a lot of time over who they want to read it, whether that's giving us a lot of information as to the things that are going to be difficult in it, the accents that are in it, the way they want characters played and stuff like that. And then some authors who kind of just forget it exists and don't really care and aren't really that bothered about the format. It's, yeah, interesting. No, you've got to have somebody behind it who has the passion to get from page one to the final mm. page. You can, you yeah. can carry it on. And it's funny because I, I tell my authors, like, you have to read your book out loud, mostly for yourself in the editing mm-hmm. process. Like, you have to stumble over the sentences to find out what's wrong. And mm. so you, you'd hope that most authors would have at least read their book out loud on their own to hear it before. But mm. but then moving that into a studio context and a lot of writers are not going to want to actually do it. They're going to say, no, get somebody professional to to give it that extra finesse, which, you know, we all enjoy it, I think. So it's, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But I mean, people like Stephen Fry, Mm -hmm. who's done the audiobooks for um, all of his books, obviously, you know, as well as being a great writer is also a great reader. And so that's one example of where it perfectly works for having the author read their own. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And we've also kind of also covered examples in the past where there's been like a mix where we've got these full cast audio productions. I'm mm-hmm. thinking specifically about 
the his Dark Materials trilogy where Philip Pullman yeah. does do the narration, but he, you know there is a kind of full cast of actors who do the other voice. And I think it really does depend on the text. There are some texts that can't carry the weight of having a full cast production. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough there in terms of like dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it really does depend on like the author as well. And it's kind of interesting what you mentioned there about some authors being really invested in yeah. wanting to act a part in the audiobook production. It's kind of, it's a little bit similar to playwrights in that respect, because there's some playwrights that mm. are kind of like, I'm absolutely going to be involved in making sure that you've interpreted the text that's kind of consistent yeah. with my vision. And mm-hmm. I've come across other playwrights who's like, yeah, just go off, do what you want. I've done the hard bit. <laughs> yeah. And work on the page. Just, yeah, just yeah. go off and uh, uh, do what you want. And I guess that also works with uh, when books get adapted for screen as well. And you have some people who are, you know, properly involved, you know, they're on set, they're really engaged in how the screenplay has been adapted. Maybe they've adapted it themselves, that kind of thing. And then others that kind of don't really care. So our last episode that we did about A Slow Fire Burning, written by Paula Hawkins, who wrote The Girl on the Train, Mm -hmm. but through listening to interviews about her and about A Slow Fire Burning, I found out that for the film, the location had been changed from the UK to America, I think. Mm. And Paula's response to that was just, yeah, that's all right. I don't mind. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, is nice because like we're talking about it's people's interpretation, isn't it? That's what the film is. It's an interpretation of this book. It leaves it open that you could have multiple films of different interpretations, some maybe more faithful. But yeah, I think that's kind of a sense of, it's maybe not not caring how it's going to happen, I guess, but it's very happy to hand over the reins for someone to do whatever they want with the text whereas some are very much yeah I want to be able to control how this my little baby is going to be seen in different formats well that's that's something I don't particularly work in with you know that's kind of a rights thing but I do tell my authors Mm. every author wants a movie deal uh, you know (laughs) I always have to say you know well make sure that your agent or your publisher knows what you want and you know the level of control that you're interested in because Sometimes it's, you know, even with a book from to a publisher, you'd lose a, a little bit of control mm. with, you know, from the publisher to the director or the, you know, down to the guy painting the, the wall. It, it, yeah. could, it could really be out of your control. So you're going to give yourself a little less stress if you just say, you know, let them interpret it. My book is mm-hmm. my book. Let them do what they see fit. And hopefully people like it. But um, <laughs> people are opinionated about these things. And sometimes yeah. it's like, just let it go, guys. It's not the same. Let it be different. Enjoy it for the difference. Yeah. yeah. I think we're getting a little bit inside baseball with some of this industry chat. But you know, I was at a, a networking event and audio rights is such a big thing now mm. these days. And there was, I can't even mention the names, but there was one person that was trying to acquire this book. And the company that they work for has gone, kind of got like a 360 rights things so they want to acquire the rights for the book the rights for the audio rights for the the film and all that sort of thing and they couldn't go ahead with the purchase of the rights because amazon had come in and offered a, a stupid mm. amount of money for the the rights to the audiobook so they just couldn't oh. kind of like go ahead with the text so it's kind of like it's interesting how these rights issues mean that certain things are going to be published somewhere rather than somewhere else and all these sorts of, sorts of things as well. That's really interesting. Wow. <laughs> when someone comes in with a lot of money and, you know, what happens at that point? Um, mm. Yeah. So have you done much work with audiobooks at all, Kelly, in terms of any books that you've edited being transferred to that format and kind of authors coming back to you for advice or information and that sort of thing? I wish. I, I mean, I think audiobooks is one of the areas where I'll slowly move more towards because a lot of my my independent authors are looking you know a lot of the authors I work with they're looking for their debut novel and so mm-hmm. you know the audiobook the ebook the you know those those things are kind of next step but it's also like publishing is scary and there's a lot of hand holding just to get the first book published um, yeah and so you know most of the time because I don't say I offer it I don't get asked about it, but I know there are some editors who have a little bit more experience with it and they, they're more able to help them. And I'm like, oh, this could be a fun direction to go to, into because mm. there is a niche where, you know, a lot of authors publish themselves, you know, via Kindle or, mm-hmm. you know, at some point they're going to start wanting to publish themselves on an audiobook. It's It's not very common. Yeah, it was interesting. We actually interviewed an author called Samantha Hunter who published an audiobook as like a children's title so sort of what 
would normally be a picture book but not actually with an accompanying print version it was just the audio and that was really cool and yeah she'd gone through the whole self-publishing process and things like that and yeah it's really interesting and how there are like studios that do are kind of targeted to helping people make their own book into an audiobook kind of you know bypassing some of the bigger houses I guess for people that are yeah going about self-publishing but have no idea how they would do an audiobook themselves you know the studios and producers and stuff that advertise you know we can take your book from start to finish and even help with casting and stuff sometimes they have like people on their books mm-hmm. that are narrators and stuff yeah. like that it's interesting how yeah there's different avenues to it it's not all about I guess a big house that does everything themselves loving your book and acquiring it there's all this amazing world of self-publishing things that's around it is but i think the reason that it's a lot of independent authors haven't gone that step is because it is a very it's a big step like yeah navigating just okay what do i do like most of the authors i'm like hand me their book and they're like what next i'm like (gasps) oh you're kidding me right (laughs) you know okay let's get a book designer let's get a formatter let's get a, a cover designer let's get you know do you have a, any kind of marketing? You know, there's a mm. huge learning curve for a lot of these authors. But I think, yeah, audiobooks should be, I should be helping them find their way more towards audiobooks. Yeah. That's cool. So do you kind of take on a lot more of that sort of, I guess, kind of agentiness in a way of helping with the whole publishing process as well as, you know, all the important editing, copy editing, developmental editing sort of stuff? I, I'm a small outfit just myself and it, that would be a really big step. So no, mm. I, but I have, you know, a big network of people that I'm like, you need this. I can refer you to this person. You need this. Got you. Yes. Yeah. So it's more of a referrals kind of thing at this point mm. just because, um, yeah, I, I, I consider myself still pretty new to professional editing. I only started in 2016 and then didn't actually really take off until 2019. So I've just stuck to editing mostly because when I arrived in London, I thought, okay, here's my chance. I'm going to get into publishing and join the SYP and did all the events. And then, yeah. And then kind of learned, I was like, I'm actually really happy where I am. I don't have meetings. Mm. I don't have, (laughs) that was kind of the deal breaker. I was like, I don't want to ever go to a meeting ever again. And so I'm going to stick to this freelance editing. But as I go, I am finding areas where like, nobody's helping people with this or the Mm. the office I'm working with don't, you know, you've just opened this door to me like, yeah, why aren't they doing audiobooks as well? That's a that's a great thing for them to be doing. So yeah. yeah, that's really cool. And like, you know, you're saying it as in, you know, oh, I don't do that. I kind of stick to this. But it's that being a point of knowledge that you can direct people to places is a, a massive thing. And I, I guess it might not feel like so much work on your end, but I can certainly imagine that it makes a huge, huge difference to the, yeah, the people you're giving that advice to. Yeah, it's and it's a labyrinth to, to get through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So kind of one of the questions I was going to actually ask you, and I think it's a good point to actually just ask it now, what does success look like for you in terms of like your editorial career? You kind of mentioned that you're quite happy now just doing the freelance work. Do you think that's ever going to change and you want to go in-house or you're just kind of happy doing what you're doing at the moment? Oh, I mean, don't we all dream of like having an office having colleagues and then coming out and then going to the bookshop and pulling our finished work off the shelf. I don't mm. think I don't think any of us ever get over that dream. I know I haven't, but we all know how hard it is to even to get in. Mm. And then like not the consequences, but like it can be very stressful. It can be very, you know, busy. I'm not going to say no, never say never, because mm-hmm. there could be a time where I'm like, oh, I've just found the right job for me. I maybe I'll apply and get it. But there is a sense of like, it's taken me a long time. All freelancers take a long time to get going. It just, mm. you don't just start freelancing. It takes years of side hustles, years of, you know, building up enough credibility to mm. get enough so you can actually make a living. And that's where I'm at now. I'm like, okay, I've, I've made it. <laughs> I can get enough, you know, I'm booked out. I'm already booked all the way through the end of the year. And I was booked out nice. basically in July, which mm-hmm. you're just kind of like, wow, how did, yeah. how did that happen? But that's exactly where most freelancers want to be. They're like, I want to see where I'm going to be for the next three to four months. And yeah. it's really nice to have that. And then, okay, I can plan my own vacation, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, is I'm sitting in a room with a suitcase. I'm going home for the first time <laughs> for two and a half years to see my family. And I love that I can say, see you later for three weeks and I'll take my work with me. Don't need to make an appearance at the office. Like it's 
it is hard to go back to that kind of um, not level of authority, but like level of like, you need to be present from this time to this time in this place. Like you do get to a point you're like, nah. <laughs> but I'm head teacher. Can't tell me what to to school. No, oh, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like, so a lot of the stuff that you do, the kind of copy editing, developmental editing is one of the things that I'm really interested in, a bit like you were saying about how you felt like you've been doing that sort of stuff for a while with helping people with getting their writing to be what they want it to be mm-hmm. um, and stuff that I really enjoy doing, you know, kind of when friends come to me with essays or things and like, Poppy, can you have a look at it? And I, I really enjoy it as a, a fun thing. So yeah, that's certainly when I've been thinking about careers and stuff, that kind of task. It's definitely been something that's interested me. But like you said near the beginning, the fact that a lot of these services are moving to freelancers rather than being in-house and that idea of having to start on your own and build it all up. And I am in complete envy of you because I just don't think I could hack it. I, I think I kind of needed that like actual job being employed by someone else for the fact of that, yeah, that difficulty of getting started and building up, I'm very much in awe of you and congratulations for how far you've brought it um, to, yeah, being able to have the sort of workload that that you're wanting that's panned out for the next few months. Yeah, it must have taken a hell of a lot of work. And yeah, I just, it's that kind of thing. I think even though the tasks maybe are something I'd really love, I'm not sure I could have hacked (laughs) what you've managed to do. Not sure I could have handled that yeah difficulty of getting started how did you kind of manage to get your gigs is it kind of free marketing or word of mouth how did you manage to kind of build up your client base so I have to kind of go back a little bit because I used to be an English instructor I used to teach university Mm -hmm. and I was editing you know academic texts and papers and that's Mm -hmm. how I I got really started into the process of, of wanting to be an editor and so I was still teaching at the time. My side hustle was I would ask any colleagues on campus. I was like, do you have a paper I can edit? And so I did a lot of that on the side. And then once I said, okay, adios teaching, I'm going to move into editing full time. You tell everybody that you are an editor and somebody has a brother who wrote a book. Somebody has a sister mm. who needs help with their story. And so you slowly build up. I got extremely lucky that I was at a literary salon event one time. The speaker was walking around talking to the guests before the event. And she comes up to me. She goes, hi, what do you do? And I was like, I'm editor. She's like, she like her hand like grasped me and <laughs> like, oh goodness, what's happening? She's like, see me after and I met with her after. And she was an overworked editor. And she just, oh. she just was like, can you take this project? Can you take this project? And so I was able to start building up more from that. And then the key thing is joining societies, groups like SYP, groups like the CIEP or the um, Society of Editors, ACES in the US. You need to know a lot of editors because when that editor, your friend who's too busy, they'll knock on your door and they'll say, I have a project. And you start doing it to everybody. I've sent on so many projects because I'm like, I'm busy, can't handle this, but this person is available. And so I don't, I haven't really done a lot of actual marketing, but it's word of mouth. It's, you know, your contacts, it's who you know. I still get from time to time people from my academic life going, hey, are you still editing? My friend finished his book. And so, you know, mm. it, it goes back from day one that you start to do something, especially as freelance, you announce it to the world and somebody will remember. And those things come back all the time. So that's worked well for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but that's that's how I got my start. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. Cool. So I've just got a couple of last last questions. So outside of audiobooks, kind of what have you been reading lately for pleasure? I realize you read a lot for work, but what have you been kind of like reading for pleasure recently? Um, I've been reading any and every book about the plague. Okay. <laughs> See, I was wondering this when Fahed mentioned about you being into dystopia stuff. I did actually think at that time about asking, how are you finding that at the moment? Because I am running away from anything that remotely connects to the current <laughs> situation. <laughs> and there's loads of stuff. And like, I think I started Sweet Tooth on Netflix without realizing that it was a, a <laughs> pandemic-based thing. And st- I just, I'm running away from anything. So you're really diving headfirst, I guess, then yeah. from that. I'm full, full on, elbow deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what are you going to be doing next? Is there any projects you want to kind of shout out about in terms of books that you're editing and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, well, because of client confidentiality, I'm not allowed to say anything. But eventually, yeah. mm -hmm. when my when they're ready, I'll have links on my website, and I'll be able to share more. But I've just finished a medieval fantasy novel that was fantastic, and mm -hmm. I'm currently working on an epic fantasy that is, oh my goodness, I I don't even know how to describe it, but it's a mix of everything you want in like fantasy, zombies, and you know, action packed. So it's that's really nice. fun. And then I have a, a Celtic book coming up soon, mm. followed by a fairy tale romance. <laughs> it sounds like a, a good mix of um, projects to be working on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? Any questions we haven't asked that we should have? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you usually ask people about their favorite podcasts, though. Do we? I think should, so. we, should, should we ask that? Have you listened? Have you listened to some episodes? I we definitely did do that for Rebecca. Yeah. Have you listened to our podcast? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, I have. And Rebecca was the last one I was able to listen to. Yeah. So. Oh, I mean, oh my God. I feel like, oh, wow. People listen. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you like it? <laughs> yeah, of course. I think they're great. It's just right. Oh. Yeah. No, well, thank it. you. Well, yeah. What podcasts are you listening to? I have to give a shout out to Rex Factor. If you guys haven't listened to it, if you like history at all, these two guys. Graham and Ali, they take you through all the kings and queens of England, Scotland, and they just do it in a really fun way. So you get a little bit of fun and a lot of history and it's, I really enjoy it. So I, I always try and give a shout out to them because it takes something that can be boring like history and makes it like, oh, this is actually something worth listening to and knowing about. So yeah, there, there are kind of quite a lot of fun history podcasts. I think my favorite one recently is We Have Ways of Making You Talk, which is a, a World War II um, I've seen that yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, that's, that's also quite good. So Kelly, can you please let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can hire you and where they can kind of like follow you on social media? Yeah. Everything's linked to my impossible to say name, Editegrity. So you can find me at editegrity.com. I'm at Editegrity on Twitter. Uh, I don't really use Instagram very much. So those are the two places I hang out most. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you, you need to get on uh, TikTok as well. Um, <laughs> you guys need, need to, to do an episode on that because I'm a little bit afraid of TikTok. Oh, I cannot help anyone out on that. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm only saying that half jokingly because my TikTok feed is filled with people talking about how the English language doesn't make any sense and kind of like editorial advice as well. So I'm only saying that half jokingly. Um, <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to speak to us. It's been a real, real pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, Poppy, any closing thoughts? No, yeah, just thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being on with us. It's been really fabulous. And so, yeah, good to get to know you and chat about these interesting things. No, thank you. I love it. Love the love the podcast. Keep it up. And thanks oh, for having me. Okay, that's great, guys. So please leave a rating and review for the podcast wherever you find it on the internet. Please, if you can throw some money into the tip jar that comes along in um every episode description that'll really help us out as well poppy what book are we doing next is it going to be small by claire lynch yes i believe so okay so watch out for that episode as well okay guys thank you so much let's say bye bye thank bye. you bye